0: The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Good morning. Sure is good to be with you. We're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 17, so if you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bibles... We're going to be considering the entire chapter this morning, and then also, we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper right after the sermon, so if you didn't get a chance to grab your elements, you can, they're in the foyer. We are going to be in Revelation chapter 17, continuing our study through this amazing book, and we're going to have a second look at what was kind of foreshadowed last week at the end of chapter 16, the destruction of Babylon. So let's turn to Revelation chapter 17. Again, we'll be looking at the whole chapter. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away into this, in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality." And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind. And they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They'll make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. For he is the Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. This is God's word. Let's pray. Uh, our Father, this is an intimidating text. Um, many things in it are strange for us, strange to us. But Lord, there's such an important warning for us in this text. Your love is here for us in this text. And so I pray, Lord, just as we get to be together as brothers and sisters in Christ and sit beneath your word, that your Holy Spirit would help us, uh, fill us. Please help me, help me to teach this faithfully, clearly. Um, And please, Lord, preach a better message by the power of your Spirit to everyone who listens, that you would reveal to each mind and each heart who you are, what you're saying, what you're drawing us to, uh, that we would see you, that we would love you, and you would know what you're calling, each, you're calling for from each one of us. That we would move towards you, Lord, in trust and obedience as we hear your word. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to worship by just hearing your word. And we pray you give us joy and fellowship and understanding and transformation as we hear your word together. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have you ever had the experience of something looking so good that you invest in only to find it was absolutely terrible? Sometimes it's like it's a stock. Uh, that stock looks good. It's going to go up. I'm going to invest in it. Ah, oh, I went down. This life will give you a lot of that kind of experience. You know, I remember back when we lived in Massachusetts, I wonder if my wife remembers this. I talked her into going to an expensive Mexican restaurant with me down in Boston. And, and the lesson here, I'll just go ahead and tell it to you, is if you're in Boston, get the seafood. <laughs> this restaurant looks so good, and the price tag, you know, it must be good, and it was awful. It was awful. And then I came to the heaven of Mexican food, you know, very soon. Well, those are maybe trivial examples. There's far more, far more painful examples of when something looks so good, you invest in it to find it's, it's terrible, it's awful. Sometimes people are like that. Relationships can be like that. Sadly, tragically, even Christian leaders can be like that. Look good, sound good, know some things. Then over time, they, they seem to be rotten, hypocritical. Sometimes think can look so good. You invest in it, you buy it, and it proves to be awful. And the reason I bring that up is because the greatest, most prominent, most popular, most dangerous version of that is what this chapter is all about. Almost nothing will look so good as what some of the stuff in here looks like. And almost nothing will be so awful as the stuff in this chapter that can look so good. And none of us are immune to this draw, this allure. So we're continuing our study through Revelation, and we're revisiting something we saw last week at the end of the seven bulls. So if you remember, last week at the end of chapter 16, the, the, uh, the seventh bowl chronicled what we would call the destruction of Babylon. And then now in chapter 17, the angel says to John, hey, let's have another look at that. I, w- I want to le- have another look with you at the destruction of Babylon. And John's going to get this look at the destruction of Babylon for the next two and a half chapters. So we're just reminded Revelation is, is maybe it's given to us chronologically in how John received the visions, but the visions aren't chronological history. We're looking at the same things over and over and over again. So we can get more depth into understanding them. And here we're going to revisit this fall of Babylon. So so why revisit it? Why is it necessary to go back and look again? I mean, we've already heard, if you looked it up, we've already heard three times in this book, Babylon's going to fall. Didn't you get it by now? Did you learn it by now? Why why do you need to see it again? Why do you need to hear it again? Why do you need two and a half chapters on it? Because you don't quite realize how marvelous and alluring this Babylon can be. And, and maybe you don't quite realize how awful it would be to follow her, to invest in this. And so it's this, it's this warning going into more depth for our good. We need to beware of Babylon. And God here is kind of to show us why. So I want to see four main things with you. The first is is kind of um, just clarification or explanation. What does Babylon signify? I hope you're picking up. It's not literal. Literally a nation of Babylon. It it signifies something. So we need to understand what it signifies. Second, we need to see what she's all about, and that's going to be the longest point by far, is see the descriptions of, of, of what she's about. Number three, we want to see where she's headed. We want to see... We get to see into the future on where this goes, and we might not understand all the details on how it gets there, but we, we know the ending. We need to see it. And then fourth, we need to think of our own response. And then as part of that, one way we'll respond together is we'll, is we'll take the Lord's Supper together. But these are the four main things I want us to see, just understanding what Babylon signifies. Number two, seeing what Babylon is all about. Number three, seeing Babylon's end, where she's headed. Number four, our response to what God has said here. So first of all, what does Babylon signify? Well, as we heard this passage, right, I don't know about you, but when I read, the past, when I read this passage the first time, I thought, ha ha, have mercy, uh, preaching that passage. It, it's confusing, it's, it's difficult. We're just reminded, one reason Revelation is difficult to, for us is because it's a kind of communication we're not very used to. It's visions just chock full of symbolism, taken mostly from the Old Testament, So just remember, God is so kind, he communicates to us in many ways, doesn't he? Think of the ways God communicates to us. Even this morning, uh, the word of God says creation communicates. Creation tell you anything this morning? The beauty of God and his glory as you see the skies, the the beauty of his kindness, his providence as you you feel the breeze. Uh, God's creation shows us some of who he is. The best communication of all, though, that's the Lord Jesus, right? That's the Lord Jesus. If you want to see him clearly, read the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. God's communicating himself to you in the most beautiful way possible, his very son who came and took on flesh. So we see his life in the Gospels. But God keeps communicating to us. You You want to know wisdom for what it means to trust Jesus or understand what he's done, how to really follow him? Read the epistles. Clear communication what it means to trust in Jesus, what God does for you in and through that, what it means to obey him and follow him, all the wisdom we need right there. And then there's revelation as well. And revelation perhaps helps us feel the importance and intensity of this story we have with Christ as we see it in symbolic terms. And so revelation with this symbol is helping us feel the intensity of needing to be faithful to Christ. And it's encouraging us, Lord willing, to be faithful to him no matter the cost. No matter what this life might bring, because we know that in the end he wins. So we're, we're, we're diving in again to the, to the symbol, helping us know and feel and experience what it means to, to follow Jesus despite the difficulty And in this symbolism here today, God wants to warn us of Babylon, Babylon. Now, again, this comes from the Old Testament. Why Babylon out of all the the nations you've ever heard of? Why Babylon? Well, if you've read through the Old Testament, you see Babylon's a big deal there. They became the nation of Babylon, perhaps the greatest, most lavish, most famous, most powerful, most successful, most overwhelming empire of all time. Um, it was that empire that conquered the entire known world and conquered God's people and dragged them into exile. So, in the Old Testament, where do God's people, the exiles, live? Where are they? They're in Babylon. They're they're not home yet. They're not home yet. And you imagine the dangers they had to face. Read read the book of Daniel. You'll see it in the first few chapters. Read the book of Daniel. It's, it's hard not to let a huge, powerful, overwhelming culture just kind of suck you in and make you just like everybody else. It's, it's hard to draw that line and actually stand out and be different and, and be willing to pay the cost for what that might mean. And so that's that aura of Babylon. She just wants to, she wants to suck you in so that your distinction as being God's people, that, that would just disappear. Well, of course, historically speaking, nobody's been worried about Babylon for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Who cares? She's gone. It's over. And yet, here here she is again, somehow. So obviously, it's not Babylon literally. In fact, what nation do you think John's audience would be thinking of as they hear these illusions of Babylon? You know who they're thinking of? They're thinking of Rome. Rome. They're thinking, of the, they're thinking of the empire of their time that wants to suck them in so they lose all the distinction of being God's people. So, in a way, Rome is Babylon. Is that confusing for you? Well, are any of you worried about Rome today? Oh, I'm really, really confused. I'm really concerned, you know, with the, the Roman Empire. Nobody's worried about that. But is Babylon gone? Is the problem over? You think Babylon's here in America? You think Babylon lurks in your heart? So what we see here is this symbolic signification, right, of the way I'd sum it up is the cultural economic systems people love and live for instead of Jesus. Cultural economic systems, so it's wide, it's broad, it's complicated, it's connected, it's subtle. You, you can't even always name it all the time. It's, it's something lurking, something you felt. It's felt. Sometimes it's like the water you live in, you know? Ask a fish about water and be like, what's water? Ask an American about Babylon. Well, what's, ba- what's Babylon? What's worldliness? It signifies these cultural, economic Systems that people love and live for instead of Jesus or put in another New Testament term. Babylon signifies the world. Babylon signifies the world. This is what the world is like. This is what the world feels like. So look with me at first John chapter 2, 15 to 17. Now just as an aside as we get there, same author, right, who wrote Revelation 17? John, who wrote 1 John? John, and so you see here a little bit of how Revelation works, you're about to, we're about to hear something clear, propositional truth from an epistle, 1 John chapter 2, and I would say Revelation 17 is about the same thing as 1 John chapter 2, just in a very different way. So listen to 1 John 2 verse 15, what does the apostle say? Do not love the world or the things in the world, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him for all that is in the world the desires of the flesh the desires of the eyes the pride of life it's not from the father but is from the world and the world is what it's passing away along with its desires but whoever does the will of God abides forever is is there a warning in here for Christians to not love the world big time given in a clear just kind of Sentence, start, and finish form. And then what's Revelation 17 about? In a way that you can feel it a little more. You probably shouldn't love the world. You should worry about whether or not you love the world. Can't spend a lot of time on it here, but just, um, you know, when we say we don't love the world, does that mean we don't love our neighbor? No. Does it mean we don't, enjoy or appreciate God's creation. No, the Bible never says anything about that. Again, we're talking about a system that's inclined against God. And you saw desires, desires, desires. The issue is over desires, lopsided desires. This is basically the core of idolatry where you make things that aren't God, God. You put things that should not be, uh, should not have the place of God in your life. You, You put things that aren't God in God's place. And so many times it's good things that we want way too much. And then when we want them too much, we corrupt them and we twist them and taint them. That's a part of worldliness. The desires of the flesh. I want that pleasure the way I want it, when I want it. The desires of the eyes I want to own. I want to have the way I want it. The pride of life. I want to, I want to boast about what I know, what I've accomplished, what I've collected. I want to be seen as right and better than others it's all wrapped up in worldliness and it's an enmity with god isn't it it's against god the love of the father and the love of the world do not go together they don't mix they don't blend it's one or the other so Revelation seventeen, then and Revelation seventeen and nineteen, I think is just a way to unpack First John two fifteen to seventeen in symbol. Ba- Babylon signifies the world, economic, cultural systems people love and live for instead of Jesus. Okay, now let's see what Babylon is about. Five main observations about Babylon. Number one, she's massively influential. You see in verse 1 that she's seated on the waters, and you're thinking, I don't know what that means. Thankfully, at the end of this chapter, John tells you what it means. I love it when he does that. Uh, verse 15, the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. Okay, good. Got that symbol, right? So, but, but, but who's all about this lady? Oh, just peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. Everyone wants Babylon. She's massively influential. You've never seen influence like this. So influenced. Uh, everyone is so influenced. Everyone, everywhere. So it's, it's not just one nation or one culture. It's, it's, it's literally the world. So here's, here's one lesson just to pick up already. Um, Christians, listen to me. Worldliness will seem normal. In fact, I heard a, a good... I think a good definition of worldliness. Worldliness is anything that makes following Jesus according to his word seem ridiculous or undesirable. When you hear about Christ or what he's done or what he calls us to and you go, eh? Worldliness. Where, I mean, think about it. Jesus Christ is king of kings, lord of lords. He's the creator. In a way, if you think of it, in a way, who he is and what he loves, that's actually normal. In a way, it's normal because It's eternal. He's the one who was and is and is to come. Who he is and what he loves and what he does, it's it's always been and it will last forever. It's the world that's crooked. It's the world that's had a joint. It's the world that had a start on being broken and it will have an end on being broken. This is the abnormal. And yet living here, you feel like following Jesus is the abnormal. Hmm. That's worldliness worldliness so she's so influential second she's so incredibly alluring she's alluring so in verse four she's got purple and scarlet adorned with gold and jewels and pearls holding in her hand a golden cup what's the point of all that she looks good you know maybe i'm out of my league here but speaking in instagram terms like she's the ultimate influencer right Everybody's getting on to see what she's wearing, you know. She, she looks good. I, I wanted to say beautiful, but it's the wrong word. I hope this comes across okay. I think the right word is she's hot. But doesn't that get at it? What is it? It's, um, uh, it's exciting. It's a combination of lavish wealth plus attractive appearance plus a certain desirability where if you think, oh, if I just had that. It's not the idea of, like, faithful, everyday love. It's the idea of the, of, the, of the zing. In fact, you know, to be very frank with you, I think it's six times in this chapter, words with the root of pornea are used. So, so just hear the word porn. Porn. I heard somebody say once, people either want to see porn, or they want to be... But it's this idea of a twisted over desire that you you either want to see and get into something that's not really yours and you want to see it in in a way that's not really the right way. And it's not about faithful love or or commitment or building something beautiful. It's just this like selfish um, coveting to either to see something you really shouldn't see or to be seen and desired and wanted in a way you really shouldn't be seen and desired and wanted. It's got that flavor to it. It's the excitement, the rage, the cool. Babylon is how you get in, you get recognized, you get accepted, you become desired. Babylon is how you get thrilled. She's deeply alluring. And what's, what's the name for her four times in this passage? It's the, it's the prostitute. Now we want to, I feel like we should say anyway, we should recognize many, maybe most people in prostitution are there due to slavery and abuse, and it's part of the beastliness of the world, right? We would want, we would want rescue and restoration for them. But, but, but what's the point of calling Babylon the prostitute? She's alluring. She's alluring. There will be moments where you, you want the world you're sure it would make you happy. Third thing, she seduces towards spiritual adultery. Verse 2, this is the one with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. Now obviously, this is not literal, symbolic usage of language. But why does John use this kind of language? Why the language of sexual immorality? Well, it's probably important to remember uh, John's worldview on these kind of things, uh, biblically speaking. Both worship, our relationship with the real God, and sexual practice, are covenantal. They're covenantal. So when God saves people, when He brings people to Himself, He always does it through covenant. He makes promises with terms and stipulations. and uh, he, he, he makes promises to his people, the most serious of promises, that, that he's ours and we're his in total devotion. In fact, the, the, probably the most beautiful example of this in scripture is that God is the great husband and together we as his people are the bride, right? And this is never more clear than in Revelation. Look at Revelation 19.9. This is our hope. This is the anti-Babylon as we're gonna see. The angel said to me, Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. What's it going to be like when Jesus comes back and we get to be with him? It's kind of like a feast and then a honeymoon. Kind of. It's kind of like that. It's kind of finally being face to face and the celebration of being there together. In fact, in Ephesians 5, right, God said, or Paul said, that God's creation and design of marriage in Genesis 2 was ultimately about who? Christ and the church. So that helps us understand what happens many times in the prophets and also here in Revelation. To give your heart to any idol, to be devoted to and to worship and serve anything other than the true God through Jesus Christ is like spiritual adultery. It's like spiritual adultery. Do you see why John uses this kind of language? I mean, I hope even for us that the idea of adultery—I mean, if you've experienced that—I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm so sorry. It's awful. But we could all sit here and realize, like, that's awful. That's betrayal of the deepest kind, right? That's that's a sorrow. And we're supposed to feel that so that we know that when we love the world, what are we doing? I'm committing adultery in a spiritual way. We're not being devoted to our great husband. And I'm looking at, how do we say it? We're looking at boyfriends. We're looking at spiritual prostitution. Why, why this kind of language? Why this kind of imagery? It's, it's supposed to be a bucket of cold water. It's supposed to be an oh. It's, it's supposed to be a wake-up call, a warning. Huh. So what do we see here? Does Jesus just want you to go to church sometimes? Sometimes. Uh, did, I mean, he wants you to go to church, <laughs> uh, but is, does that, is that all he wants? Does he, does he want you to follow some rules sometimes? You know what really he wants? He wants you, your total devotion. And in a way, that's the greatest. That's the greatest thing you could ever want. <laughs> Because here we go, right, and, and we'll, th- we'll think about this, but I- I'm guilty of worldliness. I'm guilty of spiritual adultery. I'm guilty of breaking so many commands. Does Jesus still say to somebody like me and somebody like you, I still want all of you for myself? He does. He still says it. He still receives us. Well, I, I think this helps make sense, of of how these things work in the New Testament, how it works with these letters to the churches. Uh, Worship and sexual practice are covenantal, so worship is to define our sexual practice, and our sexual practice reveals who we worship, like everything else in our lives. That's why Christians want to care about sexual integrity. The Bible tells us that it's God's good design that sexual practice belongs in monogamous heterosexual Marriage that's good for people helps people thrive, it builds up families and children well, and most importantly, it glorifies the gospel. If you worship Jesus, you want to value that and pursue it, and if you won't value or pursue it, you might be in bed with the world. Look at how this works in 1 Corinthians 6 9 to 11. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. That's a precious line. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So there we see, obviously, the importance of sexual integrity because of the covenantal relationship we have with God through Jesus Christ. But I also want you to see that sexual immorality is not the only kind or even the major kind, necessarily, of spiritual adultery. Did you see uh, North Eve's or the greedy? You know, there are some things I guess for the church. The church tends to be like, at least historically, oh, we we know those sins are bad, but doesn't the church tend to historically think, oh, those sins aren't that bad? And here we see the greedy, which means if you love money more than Jesus, that's spiritual adultery. Or how about this one for our day and age? The revilers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Is that a sin we baptize sometimes? The revilers? uh, In in King James, it's the railers, railing. Do you guys ever use that word? I may start. It's to complain or protest strongly and persistently about something to complain or protest strongly and persistently about something. I think it has the idea of loving to quarrel, loving to be self-righteous. You realize, church, that also can be spiritual adultery. It's worldliness. Why? Because it's not in line with the gospel. It's not in line with the gospel. So praise God, I want to say here, right, um, anybody in here be guilty of being worldly, you know? Okay, I'll go first. I will go first. And praise God for this text. Such were some of you. But when we trust Christ, the whole, our whole standing and definition of our identity changes. We become righteous in him, washed clean of all our sins, made adopted children of God. Those old practices and behaviors, they don't define us anymore, praise God. Even when we still struggle with them, even when we have to fight that temptation, it's not ultimately who we are. We're Christ, right? Amen. But it just shows us. It's a long way for me to make my point. What's Babylon after? She wants to seduce you to spiritual adultery that's what she's after so she's influential she's alluring she wants to influence spiritual adultery fourth thing to see in this imagery she's riding uh, she's riding a, a horse but what's the horse she's riding did you see what she's riding she's riding the beast he's red he has all those horns and those crowns, and we've met him before. Do you remember what he stands for? We've seen this through Revelation in many ways, and we can't go through all the details. He's a counterfeit of Jesus Christ, so he has blasphemous names on his head. Jesus isn't king. Jesus isn't Lord. Let's not follow him. Let's not look to his truth. This instead. In fact, the beast is best probably understood as government gone bad. Satanically influenced government, God bad, which wants to mandate idolatry. It wants to force you and pressure you. Either you it wants to force you to either not worship Jesus or worship not Jesus. Is a scarlet beast. It reminds us he's inspired by Satan himself. And so, who's? This lady looks so good sometimes, but who's she in league with? She's in league with evil. It can look so glossy, but you look underneath it in league with evil. Remember, sometimes things that look really good can be absolutely terrible. Uh, Another thing to see, she stands in opposition to the church. You know, if you're interested... Um, read about the difference between Babylon and the church in chapter 17 to 21. It's like a tale of two ladies. Uh, there's some similarities. Both are introduced by one of the seven angels. Both are signified by women who are beautiful in their own way. Both are wearing fine linen and costly jewels. Both are described as cities, which shows us they signify communities of people. So in a way, they're the same, and it's like this kind of choice, right? Right? Which, which lady do you belong to? Which one, are you, which one are you part of? But there's some differences too. Uh, one, Babylon is seen in the wilderness while the church is seen from a mountain. And you think, well, so what? Well, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you what that means, I think. Remember, the wilderness is where we live now. It's the time of tribulation between Jesus' first and second coming. That's where we live, the wilderness. It's taken from the Exodus, right? The people of God in the wilderness. Read about in Revelation 12. The wilderness is where we live now. And so seen from the perspective of now, how does Babylon look? She's hot. She's alluring. We can't look away. She's marvelous. But if you see her from the perspective of the future, guess how she'll look? Undone. We'll see that towards the end of the chapter. The church is seen from the perspective of a mountain. And so maybe you can flip it. How does the church look right now here in the wilderness? You guys are beautiful to me, by the way. Uh, I love our church. But we don't have to look very far. in In fact, we can do this by looking in the mirror. How broken is the church sometimes? How broken am I sometimes? How broken are our own relationships sometimes? How broken is how the church looks sometimes during this age? It's awful sometimes, but how will she look? How will she look when Jesus comes back? She'll be glorious. She'll be beautiful, pure, spotless. That's one of the differences Another difference, Babylon relies on the kings of the earth and their beastly kingdoms. Who does the church rely on? Our great God, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. Another difference, Babylon is corrupted, while the true church will be pure. Did you see what Babylon has in her hand? Verse 4. She's holding in her hand a golden cup. And so the Greek, I think, comes across stronger than the English. If you've got a golden cup coming towards you from someone who looks lavish and beautiful, you're expecting, like, the most delicious wine you ever drank. And then in this cup, I don't want to be crass, but it's like expecting wine and getting urine. The Greek is supposed to make you think, oh, you're about to take a drink and went, "Ha! Oh, what is that foul mess in this cup? Deeply corrupted, in her in her hand a golden cup full of abominations, uncleanness. You're supposed to gag. Which means it shows you the beauty is a fraud. There's also different names between Babylon and the church. Verse 5: On her forehead is written a name, a mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of the earth's abominations. It's like the system of wickedness is just moving us into rebellion, disobedience, everything awful. What's the name on the forehead of the church in Revelation 14? God wrote his name on our foreheads. One more between the church and Babylon. The church is tempted by Babylon while Babylon kills the church. Look at verse 6. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints. It reminds us of the context of the ancient world. So commentators tell us uh, the time when Revelation was written in these cities in Asia Minor, there were these trade guilds. And these trade guilds would be devoted to an idol, and so if you were, uh, say, a metal worker, your metal working trade guild was devoted to an idol. And so for you to participate in the business meetings, a lot of times there's a worship feast to the idol. And then sometimes there's a party after that worship feast to the idol and they're doing a whole host of things. Jesus says, no, you can't be doing that. And so now you have a choice. you become a Christian, have you? And they want you to go pour the drink offering on the, on the altar of the idol. And they want you to join the party afterwards. And you, you're pretty sure you heard what the apostle said in that letter that was read to you early Sunday morning before work. And Jesus said to you, "Huh uh oh, you're not worshiping other gods. And no, you're not acting like that. And now you have a choice to make. Do you want to join in and be a hypocrite or do you want to lose your job? What would you do? If you won't pay the price of compromise, you'll pay the price of suffering. That's part of what Babylon does. You pay the price. Sometimes it's a lesser price, sometimes it's a pretty intense price. Babylon wants you to pay the price. And the juxtaposition of these two ladies shows you that if you're a part of the church, guess what you'll be willing to do? You'll pay the price. What price would you pay to be faithful to Jesus? So Babylon signifies the world, the economic, cultural systems people love and live for instead of Jesus. Babylon wants you to be willing to pay the price of committing spiritual adultery. And now we get to see your end. Babylon will fall. Verse 6. John says, when I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said, why do you marvel? I think that's really interesting. I think it's really interesting. What does it mean when the apostle sees this vision and he's overwhelmed by this lady? And and commentators have wondered, you know, is he he allured by her a little bit because she's just so impressive in this vision and then drawn to her and then also app- app- appalled by her as well and just how powerful she is have you ever been just disgusted by how powerful worldliness is, it is in this world and it draws you in and you both are tempted by it and disgusted by it and it's just overwhelming and john marvels and what does the angel say to him why are you marveling and then you're like well because look She's powerful and influential and alluring, and everybody's all about her, and it's intimidating. And the angel gives you lots of details in the next several verses. Some of them are easy to understand, and some of them are hard. But basically, the message is why would you marvel about her when you know she will fall? She will fall. Back to the Old Testament. If you were in the midst of the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar, it would be hard to imagine. What would it be hard to imagine? It would be hard to imagine that Babylon could ever fall. And here we are hundreds and hundreds of years later, and we can't, what, Babylon? Babylon falls! Today it's hard to imagine America falling, isn't it? Why? What nation hasn't fallen after it's risen? Nations fall. Babylon will, will fall. So he, he begins to tell this mystery. Uh, first of all, there's this mystery the angel says, uh, verses seven to eight. I'll tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. Let, let's, just, let's land on this. Where does the beast go? He goes to destruction. What's going to happen to the beast? He's going to be destroyed. The was and is and is not. I think it's another picture of the counterfeit. Remember our God is the one who was and is and is to come. Here's the one who is and is not. And remember earlier, it looked like he had a mortal wound and then he recovered. I think the point of it is this. When Jesus came and lived and died and rose from the dead, he was vindicated as king of kings and lord of lords. Which means all the other beastly nations are shown to be not kings. This is the fulfillment of Daniel 7 and that vision of the, of the statue. You know, you got Babylon, this one and that one. And then the mountain comes and it's God's kingdom. It's, 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 uh, it's the vision of the Son of Man coming to receive the kingdom. Jesus is king, which means all of the counterfeits are not king. And yet Jesus ascended into heaven and who does it look like is king right now? So it's almost like the beast died and rose again. Because it looks like the beast is raining right now. Jesus, where's he? So it's this counterfeit. And the people of the world, they love to follow a winner, right? Love to follow a winner. This is what looks powerful. And, and you know what? You know what Babylon kind of offers us? Security. Would you like some security? How much of your heart and your dreams, your fantasies are about some sort of Security. I just want to, I get it, I know, I just want to have that home in that place where I could feel safe and free, would you? Me too. I just want to have that context where I feel like it's all together, and, and where am I going to go to get it? I mean, my heart needs security, doesn't yours? Where are you going to go to get it? And this world's like, Babylon, the lady's like, oh, I got security for you, baby. I have got so, you just, I've got security for you. The beast she rides is going to destruction. What does that tell you about our security? There's no security. There's no security. In fact, those who really follow her, do you see it? It's tragic. They're the the earth dwellers whose names are not written in the book. Earth dwellers for John is like a technical term for those who haven't trusted Christ. And the reason they're called earth dwellers is because this world is all they have. This is it. This is their security. But they're not right with God. They haven't repented to turn to Christ. And so their security is only as good as Babylon and the beasts, and that security is soon to fall. The beast will have his moment and go to destruction. This calls for wisdom. Then we get verses 9 to 13. And I'll just be honest with you from like a a study point of view, these are some of the most difficult verses to interpret in probably the entire Bible. So um, I'm just going to tell you my take on them, okay? So verses 9 to 13, Did you see this, you've got, Seven heads, seven mountains on which the woman is seated, and seven kings, five whom fallen. One is, the other is not yet come, and when he does, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not is an eighth, but it belongs to the seventh, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. You guys got that, right? You just, you're like, oh, totally got it. So there's kind of two main options. One is... You try to find out the formula and be like, "Well, which king is it? Who are the ten kings?" And you're digging through history. Well, it could be this one, and oh, let's count these eight Caesars and the ninth. And the, the problem is, you never have the rules or the clues for how to start and finish the formula. And it kind of you're like, ah, it doesn't work. And I don't think anyway. That's how Revelation works. It's not the way it's worked in the, the entire time. Seven, ten. Eighth, even eighth could be symbolic for counterfeit because in the early church, in a way, things start on the eighth day because it's the seventh and then one more. And so this eighth king, maybe another counterfeit, there's evidence for that. Taken symbolically, what would it mean? Here's what it seems to say. The beast will continue as nations rise and fall. It wasn't over with Babylon. It's not over with Rome. It's a global thing that continues as nations rise and fall. Not only that, things will probably get worse for Christians. In a couple of weeks, we're going to talk about views of the millennium. I know you're so excited. And one view is called post-millennialism, which means, I hope I'm not misrepresenting it, that everything gets better until, until Jesus comes back, and he basically comes back to like a Christianized world. And there's some, there's some evidence for that, and there's some wonderful Christian leaders and thinkers who believe in that, and this passage is one of those reasons I don't believe in that. I think it looks like sometimes it's going to get worse, and there's not much you and I can do about it. It's really up to us to change the culture and the nations. Hey, do we want to be good influences, faithful presence? Yeah, can you change it? It, it may get worse. It looks here like it's going to get worse. Everybody's uniting to fight against the lamb. And like we said last week, how do the nations fight against Jesus? I mean, what are they going to do, set up, like, study Bibles and shoot guns at them for target practice? How, how do you fight Jesus? You come against his people. You come against his people. And so it looks like it's going to get worse And they're they're of one mind giving their power and authority to the beast. But you see how long their time was? It counts down. It tells you how much time they get. They get one hour. Okay? Can you make it through one hour? What does that mean? Is that literal? No, it's figurative. But it's figurative for what? You can make it. You can make it. It's one hour. And then... They fall. Look at verse 14. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. The one who is faithful and true will come on his white horse, and he will feed them with the word of his mouth. Jesus will return, and when he comes back, he wins. And there will be zero question about who wins and the extent of his victory. Overwhelming victory. That's our hope, the return of Jesus. Jesus. And these last few verses here for the end of Babylon, look at verses 16 to 17. The ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. What's going on here? You you know what you see? God does this to uh, his enemies a lot in the Old Testament. They turn in on themselves. Evil destroys itself. Remember Gideon in the battle uh, with the Midianites? start fighting themselves, and so here the beastly powers, the nations, are against Babylon, the economic and cultural systems, and you see the world eating itself alive. No unity. Chaos, destruction, and look at how the lady looks at the end of 16. Desolate, naked, devoured, and burned. You just got to see her for who she really is. And what she'll really be. Do you still want to join to her? Do you still want to be part of her? So, wouldn't you live a a holier life if you could see what the result of your sin would bring and feel it before you did it? I mean, right before I sin, I'm like, oh, this has got to be the greatest thing ever. I've discovered the way, right? The way to joy right here, even though I know better. And what's going to come from that? Just death, death in my thinking, death in my relationship with God, death in my relationship with you, death in my relationship to the world, just corruption, just lostness, just foulness. If you could smell it and taste it before you made the choice, you think you'd ever make different choices? What's God doing for you here? Babylon's so influ- influential, so alluring. Look at what she's doing, and go and have it had a go ahead and have a really good look on how she ends. You don't want to invest in her. You don't want to follow her. You don't want to play the part with her. You don't want to hold hands with her. You do not want to be in league with the world because she will fall. Amen. What's our response? Number four. Three responses just to wrap it up. Number one, find a better security. Look back at verse 14. They will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them for he is Lord of lords and king of kings and those with him are called, chosen, and faithful. Hey church, how are we saved? Is it because of our lack of worldliness? No. No. Look at what God has done for us. He's called you. What does that mean? He's called you. He's called you. He has you in his mind, and he said to you, come, you will be mine. You're going to know me. You're going to see me. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to be yours. Come. He's called you. And if you've trusted Christ, you've responded to that. Why did he call you? Because he chose you. Read Ephesians 1. When did God choose you if you're a Christian? When did he choose you? Before the foundation of the world, he chose you in Christ to adopt you as his child. That's always been on his mind. He's done everything necessary to accomplish it. He set things up for Christ. He sent Christ to accomplish things perfectly. He sent his spirit to call you and awaken you. You've been chosen. You're called. Do you have any idea how secure your future is? How secure are you? You're going to inherit the kingdom of the Son forever. That's the security. It's the security of the Lamb. He lived the perfect life for us, fulfilling God's standards. He died on the cross for us as our substitute. He rose from the dead and reigns. He will return for us. Jesus and his love is our security. Do you believe that, church? I believe it. I need to believe it more. He's our security. Look to the better security. That's an antidote towards holding hands with the world. To be satisfied in Christ. Second thing, in his love, be faithful. Look at Revelation 18 4. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people. Lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. What what does God say to his people about worldliness? Come out of her, my people. So what do we do now? Do we start an enclave in like central Nebraska, you know, and then if we all move there, there won't be any worldliness anymore? And you all are giving me the the face like, "Mm." right? Because what's the problem? Wherever we moved and wherever we started our enclave, we still live in Babylon. And guess what even we're bringing with us a little bit. The issue is not getting out of a certain place. It's getting it out of you. We live in this world. There's nothing we can do about it. In in fact, you're meant to. Shine the light. Love your neighbor. Tell people about Jesus. The, The thing is, Sometimes you got to run from worldliness, but mostly you got to kick it out of being inside of you. (laughs) Don't church? Don't we get in deep trouble when we think worldliness is only a problem out there? I mean, how easy would it be if we got together and we were like, "Let's let's make a list of all the worldly sins we see out there," and we're, "Oh yeah, could each be like pages and pages? Can you find any in yourself?" Why would it be infinitely easier to find it all out there and so hard to find any in here? It's because you're worldly. Because <laughs> I'm worldly. It's still, it's still the, the trend, the take is in there. So I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to ask the Lord to show you one way you're especially tempted to worldliness and try to deal with that, with Christ as your head and your king. That's part of what it means to be faithful. The the juxtaposition of these two women. I don't want to have a heart like like a prostitute, right? I want to have a heart of faithfulness to my king. That's what I want to be. Don't we want to be faithful? We want to be faithful. Finally, drink from the better cup, and that will take us to the Lord's Supper. We saw this lady holding out a golden goblet, and it is a bunch of, of nasty But doesn't it remind you of somebody else holding out a cup once? Matthew 26, 26, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, gave thanks to the disciples, gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of, Of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. That's going to be the good drink. And we share the first fruits of it as we take the Lord's Supper together. Let's trust Jesus, the Lamb, our great husband. Be devoted to him, for he is our security. Amen? I'll pray. We'll take the Lord's Supper together. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would show us worldliness in our own minds and our own hearts and that we would be appalled and disgusted and our great desire would be to be faithful to you, our great king, our great husband. Lord, forgive us of the ways we've been allured by the world, influenced by the world. Help us clearly recognize and see what faithfulness looks like and follow you. We thank you, Lord, that we're not right with you based on our perfection, but that you, Lord Jesus, is the Lamb who was slain, are our victorious Savior. In you, we are called. In you, we are chosen. In you, we are righteous, washed, made clean. In you, we can be faithful. Please bless us now as we take the Lord's Supper together. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.